you have your Bibles, turn with me to Isaiah chapter 44. We're in Isaiah chapter 44. In just a moment, I will begin reading in verse 24 of Isaiah 44. As we continue our sermon series that we have entitled, A Certain Hope in Uncertain Times. I wonder, what is it that you are uncertain about here today, there are a lot of things in our culture that would make us uncertain. For many of us, we're uncertain about our health, as there is a virus that thousands of people in our state and millions of people in our country have contracted, and so some of us are uncertain about our health. Others of us are uncertain about our finances. Some of us have lost our jobs. I know there are those within our number who have been furloughed and won't go to work until later in the year. Uh, those of us who have kept our jobs worry about the cash flow and how long will business hold up. So we have concerns. And for others of us, physical distancing has led to social distancing because we have kept our physical distance from one another to avoid spreading the virus, we feel isolated. Uh, we are, have socially distanced ourselves instead of just physically distancing ourselves, and the rates of depression are up. The instances of substance abuse are up uh, because of that loss of a relational connection. For many of us, we're uncertain about our government or the society in which we live. This is an election year, and there are struggles for power going on in our community, in our state, in our nation. And we're having trouble as a nation even talking to one another without being misunderstood or misconstrued or misperceived. And one of my big concerns is that when we get more uncertain, when we get more fearful, when we begin to feel a little more desperate, then we become a little more mean with one another. We become a little more impatient. We become a little more intolerant. But I want you to know today that there is a certain hope that you can have even in uncertain times. And that hope does not come from our health or from our finances or from our relational connections or from our governmental leaders or our society. That hope comes from God alone. And my prayer for our time today has been this, that you would be reassured as you hear how God has worked in the past in some surprising ways and how God has preserved his people and grown them to be more like him and used them to build his kingdom even in difficult times in the past so that you would have more hope here at the present time as we face an uncertain future. In fact, there are four things I want you to see that God speaks to his people through the prophet Isaiah. And the first one, as the thunder rolls, is God's supremacy. God is supreme. 
God is over all things, and the first thing God speaks through the prophet Isaiah to give his people a certain hope is he speaks of his supremacy. He speaks of being over and above all things. And that's easy for us to get focused on the horizontal things, the things around us. And so I want to focus us, as God does through the prophet Isaiah, on God himself, to have more of a vertical focus for a moment. And to think about God being the highest thing. He is the highest in purity because of his holiness. God is the highest in character because of his goodness. God is the highest in knowledge because he knows all things. God is the highest in power because he controls and rules over all things. God is the highest and greatest things. In fact, here in Isaiah 44, beginning at verse 24, God says, I am the Lord who made all things. So God is telling us from the very beginning, he's the one that made it all. And when we get to chapter 45 and verse 7, we'll see where God says, and I am the Lord who does all things. So from the very beginning to the very present to the very end. God is the one who is in control of all things. I want to read, beginning in verse 24, Isaiah 44, here to the end of the chapter, and then pray for us and keep going as we see what God wants his people to know through the prophet Isaiah. Hear now God's word, Isaiah 44, beginning in verse 24. Thus says the Lord your Redeemer, who formed you from the womb, I am the Lord who made all things, who alone stretched out the heavens, who spread out the earth by myself, who frustrates the signs of liars and makes fools of diviners, who turns wise men back and makes their knowledge foolish, who confirms the word of his servant and fulfills the counsel of his messengers, who says of Jerusalem, she shall be inhabited in the cities of Judah, they shall be built and I will raise up their ruins. Who says to the deep, be dry, I will dry up your rivers. Who says of Cyrus, he is my shepherd, and he shall fulfill all my purpose. Saying of Jerusalem, she shall be built, and of the temple your foundation shall be laid. Let's pray together as we come to God's word. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I thank you for your word, and I pray that you would use the preaching of your word now. Just as you used the prophet Isaiah, I pray that you would use these words that Isaiah recorded in order to bring a certain hope to your people who are in the midst of uncertain times. And Father, I pray that you would be willing to do that, even through the sin-stained lips of a foolish preacher. For it is in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. I want to tell you now about how God's people long ago in Isaiah's day learned to have a certain hope in the midst of uncertain times so that we can have that same certain hope in our time. Let me tell you how it came about. If you read the book of Isaiah, for 40 chapters, God, through the prophet Isaiah, is pointing out how his people have sinned, how they have fallen short, how they have not lived life the way God designed for it to be lived. Isaiah goes through the great specificity, shows that to God's people. 
But instead of seeing the error of their ways and turning back to God, Israel continued in their disobedience and did not listen to calls for repentance, did not turn back to God. And so as a result, God has said that he will destroy Israel, that he's going to raise up the Babylonians. And the Babylonians are going to come in and destroy their cities, destroy the temple. That he will carry the Israelites off into exile. The Babylonians will have them for six or seven decades in exile. And that's where we find ourselves when we come here. That's what God is telling his people. But for the people of God, the judgment of God is never the end of the story. God always draws his people back to himself. And God always restores them when they turn back to him. And God promises to do so here. Look what he says. Look at verse 26. When he says of Jerusalem, she shall be inhabited. He said that because Jerusalem's going to be uninhabited when God's people are taken into exile in Babylon. When he says the cities of Judah shall be built and I will raise up their ruins, they're going to be ruined because the Babylonians are going to come in and destroy everything. In verse 27, when God said, who says to thee, be dry, I will dry up your rivers. God is reminding his people how he has saved them, how he's freed them before. When they were slaves in Egypt, which would have been centuries before. God, through mighty acts of judgment, drew his people out of Egypt and brought them back to the land that he had promised them. The reference in verse 27 is to the drying up of the Red Sea. And he's reminding them how he was willing and able to deliver them before, and he is willing and able to deliver them again. But think about what he's doing. What's the rhetorical device? God is reminding his people of his faithfulness in the past in order to calm their fears in their present which is exactly what we're doing now, right? We're remembering God's faithfulness, not just to the Exodus, but also to this exile generation that Isaiah is speaking to. And as we see how God works and what God's purposes are, then we're able to have a certain hope in the times in which we, we live. Verse 28 says that Jerusalem shall be built, the temple, the foundation is going to be laid, that, that God is going to restore all those things. But in verse 28, he says something that is very interesting, very surprising, would have been shocking to the original audience. God says in verse 28, of Cyrus, he is my shepherd. He shall fulfill all my purpose. Now, why would this be surprising when Isaiah is writing? And there are really a couple of reasons. The first one is this. God's people haven't even been taken off into exile in Babylon yet. And once they get there, it'll be six or seven decades. And then Cyrus the Great, who you may have studied in world history, will raise up Cyrus the Persian, will come and conquer Babylon and allow God's people to go back and will finance the building of the temple and the building of their cities. But here's the thing. When Isaiah writes this, or when the Lord speaks this to the prophet Isaiah, Cyrus has not even been born yet. God's talking about this a century before it takes place. In fact, it's one of the things, if you read Isaiah, why God says he's better than the idols and the gods of the nations is because he can 
foretell the future because he controls the future, because he controls the present, because he controls all things. And so this is shocking because Cyrus the Great is predicted by name at least four times in the book of Isaiah before he's even born, which is why God later in chapter 45 will say, I gave you that name. Why God will say, I equipped you. I gave you victories. That God raises up Cyrus the Persian before he's even born, calling him by name. That Cyrus will be the one to free his people from exile and rebuild the temple. It shows that God is in absolute control of all of history. And that God is shaping everything that happens, the events of history, to accomplish his purposes. So number one, it's surprising because God calls somebody by name before they're even born, right? A century before it happens, God's able to name names because he controls everything that happens. The second thing that's surprising is Cyrus is a Persian. Now, I want you to think about that. That Israel is conquered by Babylon, they're taken into captivity, and then God said, I'm going to raise up a Persian to free you. Think about our own country. What if... Because of our unfaithfulness, God had us attacked by Iraq. Dude, that is present-day Babylon, okay? And then we're going to be carried off into exile by the Babylonians. But then God promises he's going to free us. And what I would expect the story to be is that God raises up his people, right? That God uses somebody noble that, like Captain America, the Avengers come and free the United States, Right? Or that God's people rise up. But instead the story is Iran rises up and frees you from Iran. Iran is presently Persia. So that's exactly what God is saying here. God's people would be taken aback by this because Cyrus, it says in verse 28, that he is God's shepherd. Or look at Isaiah 45 and verse 1. It says that the Lord calls Cyrus his anointed the same word we use for Jesus Christ, Jesus the Messiah, Jesus the Anointed One. So God is using language that he has only used for the one coming in the line of David, the Messiah. He's applying that to this pagan Persian. He's applying this language to a Gentile conqueror, to an idolatrous invader. Isaiah has been making fun of people who worship idols. And here God is saying that this idolatrous invader is going to be the one that frees his people. It would be shocking to the people of God. They would have to wonder, is God giving up on us? Has God forgotten about us? Is his chosen people going to be the Persians now instead of Israel? Is God just turning the moral order of things upside down? Because it looks like we thought evil was winning when Babylon conquers us, but it looks like even the bad guys are going to be conquered by worse guys. They have to be thinking that the world is being turned upside down. Let's stop and think about where we are right now. We feel that way today, don't we? It feels many times like God has forgotten about his people, like God's abandoned his people, like, like God is not with us or for us any longer. When we look around and see people are sick or dying, when we see people losing their jobs or struggling financially, when it seems to us that 
godless people are winning, when it looks like evil is triumphing, when it looks like the bad guys are losing to even the worst guys who are conquering them, we begin to feel so vulnerable. We begin to feel so afraid. We begin to feel so alone. And so did God's people in Isaiah's time. That must be exactly the way that they felt. And so God, through the prophet Isaiah, and today through the preaching of this word given to Isaiah, God is reassuring his people that God made all things. And since he made all things, he is free to interrupt the processes of history and shape events the way he wants them to go. God's sovereignty is so big that he can accomplish his purposes through whomever or whatever he wants to use. Listen, as you look at the world and it seems like things are being turned upside down and that evil people are winning, that evil is triumphing, remember that God is not defeated by the temporary winds of evil. God uses the ugly realities of human history to accomplish his purposes. So I want you to think about that. What ugly realities are you afraid of? What evil things frighten you or cause you uncertainty today? As you think of those things, as they come to your mind, as you worry about them as you go to sleep at night, as you're concerned about them when your children go to school or go out to play, as you worry about the world that our kids will walk into. Remember that we can have a certain hope even in the midst of uncertain times. Because long ago, God threw a pagan Persian in Isaiah's day. He used shocking means in order to accomplish his ends, and he can do that in our day as well. So first, remember God's supremacy. But the second thing God shows his people through the prophet Isaiah is God's purposes. He's saying, look, I control all things, I'm above all things, but I want you to see what I'm doing. I want you to see what my purposes are. And here in Isaiah 45, there are at least three purpose clauses in the Hebrew that God uses to show his purposes. See if you see them. I'm going to read verses 4 through 7 of Isaiah 45. What are God's purposes here? God says to Cyrus, for the sake of my servant Jacob and Israel my chosen, I call you by name. I know you, though you do not know me. See, God's using somebody who doesn't even know him. Verse 5, I am the Lord and there is no other beside me. There is no God. I equip you, though you do not know me. God is giving the means of triumph to Cyrus, even though Cyrus does not bend the knee, does not know God. Verse 6, why? That people may know from the rising of the sun and from the west there is none besides me. I am the Lord, and there is no other. I form light and create darkness. I make well-being and create calamity. I am the Lord who does all these things. You see the purposes of God there. The first one is very clear in verse 4. He says, I do this for the sake of my people. Right? You see it, verse 4? 
for the sake of my servant Jacob, for the sake of Israel, my chosen, for the sake of God's people, God calls and equips people who don't know him and gives even people who don't acknowledge him victories. Why? For the sake of his people, for us. What is God teaching you in these uncertain times? You should take time to think about that, to pray about that, to ask God, God, what are you teaching me during these uncertain times? I'll go first. I'll tell you some of the things I'm learning. I have learned a new dependence on God. You see, I used to think that I could control things, that I could plan things. And man, you, you want to know how many re-entry plans I made for our church? Like about six, and you just throw them away, right? I'm not in control like I thought I was. And I have learned a new dependence on God. I pray more because I feel more out of control. Now, I was always out of control. God was always in control. But because I'm more aware of it, I feel like I pray more. I cry out to God. I am quicker to go to Him in prayer. I've learned in this time to slow down a little bit. It's been good to have time with family. My oldest is going off to college in the fall. It's been sweet to have more time with her. It's been nice to not have something every night of the week where we run like crazy people. It's been nice to slow down. And as our call to worship said, to, to be still and know that God is God. I've learned more in this time that God is sufficient. If you had told me that there would be no NBA playoffs, no opening day to baseball, that no NCAA tournament, no March Madness, no Masters in Augusta, no Kentucky Derby, I'm a huge fan. I'm like, man, I don't know if I can survive that. But I have learned that God is sufficient. I haven't seen Sports Center in months, and I'm okay. Because God and his grace and his mercy have met me in this place. What's God teaching you in these uncertain times? Because his purpose in the uncertainty, one of them is for the sake of his people. That we would know him more. That we would be drunk. That's the whole reason he raises up the Babylonians is so the Israelites will turn back to him. How is God calling you back to himself? I see a second purpose in the text. You see it there in verses 6 and 7. God says that people may know me. Right? In verses 6 and 7, God says that he wants his glory to be amongst the nations. That he uses light and dark. He uses well-being and calamity. So people will know that God is above all things. And look at how global this is. He's saying, look, not just that Israelites would not just so Babylonians would know, not just so Persians would know, but from people all the way from the east, from where the sun comes up in the east to where it goes down in the west. That's the, the whole world, right? The whole globe. That God is doing this so that people all over the world would know him. Let me just ask you, do you know God? Do you have a relationship with him? This is a great time to have one. This this uncertainty as the things that you typically look to 
to give you value and purpose. As those things have been taken away or restricted, it's a good time to realize that those things are limited and to turn to the only one who's not limited. I would love to talk with you about that. Lee would, Alex who prayed, any of our leaders would love to talk with you about knowing God and how you can know him. If you do know God, then let me ask you this question. Do you long for people all over the world to know him? Do you have a longing for that? Do you want God to get glory because he gets the worship of the nations? Because people have that same joy, that same peace that you have because of your relationship with him. Is that something you prioritize? Is that something you invest time and money in? Seeing that people all over the world would know God. I want you to know God's purposes are as big as the whole earth. And he uses some shocking means to accomplish his purposes. The means of God include everything that happens as God achieves his purposes. Including the things that we are so worried and uncertain about. God is using those things to accomplish his purposes. You do know evil is not outside of God's control, right? Somehow God uses evil without being corrupted by it. And nothing can stop him from accomplishing his purposes. How could it? If God could lose, he would not be God. In fact, if you think about it, the very worst evil ever perpetrated in this world is when God came and lived as the only perfectly good man. And we killed him. Sinful people put him to death. But later, Isaiah in chapter 53 and verse 10 will say it was the Lord's will to crush him. Peter's preaching at Pentecost in Acts chapter 2 and again in Acts chapter 4 down there around verse 26 through 28. says that evil men did what God planned beforehand would happen. And so we see that the worst evil ever committed was something that God had planned for and used so that the greatest good that will ever take place could happen. So don't be afraid. Evil cannot stop our God. We can have a certain hope even in uncertain times because God has always used surprising means to accomplish his purposes. I want you to see one more purpose of God. The first one was so that we would know God. The second one, so that people everywhere would know God. Look at this third one in verse 8. I didn't read that, but I want you to see this one. As his kingdom comes in us and in this world. Look at verse 8. Shower, O heavens, from above, and let the clouds rain down righteousness. Let the earth open up that salvation and righteousness may bear fruit. Let the earth cause them both to sprout. I, the Lord, have created it. The Lord is saying, that if you belong to him through the finished work of Christ on the cross, this verse 8 is a picture of what God promises to do in and through you. There is new life available for you that springs up out of your spiritual deadness that you feel apart from God. That God rains down righteousness in your life and that we bear fruit that righteousness and bearing fruit means that we are going to look more and more like jesus that he's using everything to conform us to the image of christ romans 8 28 
in that God's kingdom comes. And his will is being done here on earth like it is in heaven as Jesus taught us to pray in the Lord's Prayer. Do you see that? That as his kingdom sprouts in us, that it begins to come on the earth through us. Don't you want new life within you? Don't you want to be a part of something bigger than yourself that makes this world a better place? Wouldn't you be willing to give your life to that? Come to God. Do the finished work of Christ on the cross. And not only can he do that in and through you, but he will do that in and through you. Oh, but I must tell you in this next verse, God tells us why we don't experience those things. He tells us why that doesn't happen. Lisa and I were meeting with someone recently, and they said, yes, I keep wanting God to do these things to me, but he's not. And I, and I think this is where that person is struggling. Look at verse 9. God tells us, this is the third thing I want you to see, our pride and our arrogance. Look at it there in verse 9. God says, woe to him who strives with him, who formed him. A pot among earthen pots. Does the clay say this him who forms it? What are you making? Your work has no handles. You hear what God is saying? That the reason we don't experience this new life, the reason that we're not having his righteousness rain down on us, the reason we're not bearing fruit, the reason God's kingdom is not coming in us and through us is because we want to be God. Or at least because we want to advise him and we think we know better how he should do things and what he should do and when he should do them. That as the creation, we want to tell the creator what he should be doing. Just like the potter, the, the pot wants to tell the potter how he should make the creation. As if we know better than what God knows. Verse 9 says, this is the person who strives with God. Your translation may say he argues with God. He quarrels with God. He contends with God. Now, I want to be very clear. God is not offended by your honest questions. You'll see here in verse 20, he invites us to bring our hesitations to him. Like we prayed this morning in the opening prayer. God wants us to bring our questions. Read the Psalms. Men after God's own heart do it all the time. Men, join us on Wednesday nights. We're going through the Psalms, and we've seen this clearly as David and, and this past week, Asaph, just bring all these questions to God. But at some point, they turn a corner, and they bend the knee, and they say, but Lord, you are God, and I'm not. You know better than I know. God is warning us about here. It's not that we can't ask questions. We all have them, and God invites them. But when we judge God, because God is not doing what we think is the right thing, in the right way, at the right time, then God says it's like the clay criticizing the potter. It's like a created thing criticizing the creator. And in verse 9, God says to that person, woe, woe to that person. And this is not woe, W-H-O-A, like stop. This is woe like W-O-E. It is a cry of lament. It's sad. God is saying it is sad 
When people cannot experience new life in him, they can't experience the, the righteousness and the fruit that can be born in them. And they can't be used of God for the kingdom to come in them and through them because they think they know better than what God knows. And when God pronounces this woe on them, he is saying, I am sad that you won't let me be God for you. You keep insisting that I do things your way, but I'm going to be your God, not your genie in a bottle who carries out your wishes. God says, I want you to be my beloved child, we'll see in Isaiah 49. God says, I want you to be my beloved child, not my judge sitting in critique of me and what I do and how I do those things and when I do them. God is saying, how can you experience the love of God for you if you won't let me be God to you? It's sad. And I want you to know it's true for those coming to Christ. Many people don't come to Christ because they want to strive because something bad has happened in their past. And they wouldn't have written their story that way. And so they're bitter and angry. And the evil one uses that to keep them from coming to the Lord. It happens to those who, when they're coming to Christ. But I want you to know what happens in the life of believers as well. There are those of us who are not bearing fruit. Those of us who are not having righteousness. That that new life in us seems choked out. Because we get upset with what God has done. I'll confess I do it. God may move someone from the church that, that I'm really close to, that I feel like we need here. Or, or God does something in the world that I just don't think is right, that I think is wrong. And so I'll go a day or two without talking to God. I won't say anything to him because I'm angry with him. My family's like, I don't need to say it because I'm like, yeah, that's the way you react. <laughs> so I just get mad at God and I don't talk to him as if I know the way things should go. And God has made a mistake. I'm going to give him the silent treatment a day or two. Until I come to my senses and say, what am I doing? God is God. He knows better than what I know. Until God brings us back to that first thing, his supremacy. That second thing, that his purpose is for us to build his kingdom. And though we may not can see it, God is doing something that we can't even imagine. Listen, I want to make an application here. I think this is important. I've had a lot of conversations about this. This truth that God does things that we don't fully understand. Isaiah will say in, verse, in chapter 55, my ways are higher than your ways. Right? My thoughts are higher than your thoughts, God will say. What that means is this. Listen, it means that faith in God or a relationship with the risen Christ is not always easy. Let's just be honest about that. Sometimes it's easier to see in somebody else. I've told you my story. Think about the original audience. Under King David and King Solomon, they had this expansive empire. They had a standing army. They had national independence. They had wealth and prosperity. They were in control of their lives. But now God's people are defeated. They're being carried off into exile. They're saved by this pagan Persian. They get to go home with his permission. They rebuild the temple with his money. They must feel humiliated. They must feel like they are having a hard time accepting what God is doing. Surely you felt that way sometime. It's a natural response from God's people. 
But I want you to hear from his word that God is too independent from us. He is too far above us for faith in God to always be easy. For our relationship, for our walk with Christ to always be easy. It's not always easy. But when it's not, it typically comes back to our pride, to our arrogance, that we think we know better than what God knows. And we're angry or bitter because he hasn't done what we want him to do when we want him to do it. We forget that he is supreme and that his purposes are for his people so that more people would come to know him and so that his kingdom would advance. When we get there, there's a fourth thing that God has through Isaiah that I want you to see, that I want you to hear today, and that's God's invitation. We've heard his supremacy. We've heard God's purposes. We've seen our pride and our arrogance. I want you to hear God's invitation, and I see that beginning in verse 20. Look at God's invitation. God says, assemble yourselves and, and come. Draw near together, you survivors of the nations. They have no knowledge who carry about their wooden idols and keep on praying to a God that cannot save. Declare and present your case. Let them counsel together. I told you a minute ago that God invites the debate, right? He invites that. And then God says, who told this long ago? Who declared it of old? Was it not I, the Lord? And there is no other God beside me, a righteous God and a Savior. There is none besides me. Listen to the invitation, verse 22. Turn to me. And be saved, all the ends of the earth, for I am God, and there is no other. Do you hear God's invitation to bring your questions, to bring your doubts, to interact with him over those things? Do you hear how God calls us to himself and reasons with us? Do you see how he invites us to rethink our lives and to turn to him? We keep turning to idols, to things other than God that cannot save. Our idols are only created things, things God has created. So by definition, they are less than what God is. There's something that he has made. He's greater because he made those things. And when our idols do seem to be helping us, we're actually just experiencing the goodness of God through his creation but without recognizing that it's from him or thanking him or praising him for those things. And ultimately, there is no life or righteousness or salvation or hope to be found in any of those things except in God alone. So he calls us to turn from lesser things and to turn to him to experience the life and the hope that only he can provide. All this reminded me of a book that my youngest, Caroline, had to read this year for school. So we read The Silver Chair together for school. And it's a story about a girl named Jill who is thirsty, and the Christ figure is a lion. And as Jill is dying of thirst, she finds this stream, but she finds the lion resting in the sun right next to that stream. And the lion says to Jill, are you not thirsty, said the lion. I'm dying of thirst, said Jill. Then drink, said the lion. May I, could I, would you mind going away while I do, said Jill. The lion answered this only by a look and a very low growl. And as Jill gazed at its motionless bulk, she realized that she might as well have asked the whole mountain to move aside for her convenience. 
The delicious rippling noise of the stream was driving her nearly frantic. Will you promise not to do anything to me if I come, said Jill. I make no promise, said the lion. Jill was so thirsty now that without noticing it, she had come a step nearer. Do you eat girls, she said. I have swallowed up girls and boys, women and men, kings and emperors, cities and realms, said the lion. He didn't say this as if he were boasting, nor as if it were, he were sorry, nor as if he were angry. He just said it. I dare not come and drink, said Jill. Then you will die of thirst, said the lion. Oh dear, said Jill, coming another step nearer. I suppose I must go and look for another stream then. There is no other stream, said the lion. Oh, beloved, there is no other stream. There is no other source of life and righteousness and hope and peace. There is no other source of those things. So I call you, don't be angry with God because he hasn't done things the way you think they ought to be done. Don't keep clinging to your hurt feelings, to your ruined plans, to your broken dreams, to your selfish pride. Don't keep striving with God, sulking, because he's not done things the way that you would have done them. If you will trust in God more than you trust in yourself and let go of your foolish pride and arrogance, then you can experience that life, that joy, that hope, that salvation that comes only from him. He invites you to come to him for that. And there is no other source for what you are thirsting for. Let's pray and ask him to help us to do that. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, thank you for your word. I pray for your people that you would create in them a certain hope even in the midst of uncertain times. Lord, you tell us that when your word goes forth, sometimes the evil one comes and plucks the seed before it sprouts. I pray that you would protect the preaching of your word. Anything that I have said that is not consistent to your word, I pray that it would be blown away as chaff from the wheat. But those things that are of you, I pray that you would use them to bring reassurance and hope and joy and a certain hope even in uncertain times to your people. Please do that this day, for it is in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen.